You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. In our third season with Derms and Conditions Podcast, which we're very proud of, and, and I know you're going to learn a lot today. So let's get started. I have April Armstrong and David Cohen back from by popular demand. And I have to tell you, you better be sharp today because I've been here for a week and I've been using that shower gel and it says that I am enriched. I am enriched by flaxseed extract, white tea and vitamin E. So I am pumped up with this stuff. So you David, are even better we, than you always. Where do we always, start? Where yeah, do we start? Right? You're better than you ever been because of that. Yeah. Now the question is, uh, you know, how is it applied? Um, and we got into that during the meeting a bit on, on, on application technique, of course. Um, I, I, I think uh, what, what we did get to talk a little bit about is things like contact dermatitis really do reflect what we do on a daily basis. And I did want to highlight that, of course, if you don't have contact dermatitis, this is just of interest for those that have eczema or, or poorly controlled dermatitis where you really have to stop and think what from the outside might be provoking it. Um, just to draw the highlight back for those that weren't at the lecture, the 2023 allergen of the year by the American Contact Dermatitis Society was lanolin, right? And um, got a mixed response from the group, right? Some, I think, uh, thrilled with it and some maybe not so much. But remember, uh, lanolin's going to bring on dermatitis in a pretty slow um, on onset. It's not going to be one of these fiery quick onset like maybe hair dye or, or poison ivy. So I think those who have um, dermatitis on their lips, eyelids, groins, even before you go to the patch test, consider that lanolin may be an issue. Most of us use lanolin products very safely, not an issue for most of us. So I don't want there to be hyperbole or, or over-exaggeration of the importance of it, but lanolin creeps in. And when you have a lanolin allergic patient, get rid of lanolin and amarcol containing products. So um, April, any thoughts on that or anything else that, 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 that you uncovered that you found in the meeting? Yeah, thank you for inviting an adult to this conversation. And uh, now uh, <laughs> I'm going to shift the She's focus. She's sassy, isn't she? <laughs> I'm going to shift the focus from the method of application to maybe talking about some of the wonderful psoriasis tips that we learned from our colleagues, Dr. Lovewall, Dr. Bhutani, um, and so forth. We, we now know, for example, for topical therapies, non-steroidal topical therapies, we're actually looking at longer-term results. So, for example, at this very meeting, we have topical roflumilast uh, being studied and shown that it can maintain its clear or almost clear uh, results for a median of at least uh, 10 months, so that's helpful. And I think for Topinarov, uh, about half of the patients achieve uh, BSA 1% or less, which is a very stringent criteria for topicals, um, and nevertheless, you know, even for a non-topical uh, therapy. So we're seeing non-steroidal topical therapies with good efficacy and as well as tolerability with longer-term results. So um, one, of the, one of the double-edged swords I think about with that is if we tell people that, you know, you can use this and you're going to have months that you're clear without using it, or do we want to be cautious about, you know, patients stopping treatment and then going back to square one, or we might want them to be using things, you know, continue to use these therapies since they do have the absence of the 
of side effects that you would have with a corticosteroid. So how do you see it, you're going to integrate that into your patient recommendations? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And uh, um, actually, Ask by an adult, I want to know. <laughs> you're getting there. I'm just <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, so actually studies have shown if you, you need to treat, you want to treat the patients to clear, and then um, you can essentially try to stop. Um, and then uh, in the study that you've you've seen, we've seen is that they then start as soon as they find any disease activity, right. at least for topical roflumilast. Um, my, you know, my recommendation is that you treat person, the person continuously to clear, and then perhaps use them on the weekends as a uh, proactive therapy to, to decrease flares. Yeah, I'm, I'm a strong believer in proactive therapy. So David, I'm picturing this allergen of the year scenario. Uh -oh. And have you ever had a time where you had an allergen of the year and then you looked out the window of your office in New York and there were dermatologists picketing uh, against the allergen of the year? Any, any challenges there? No, you get, you get some feedback about it. Remember, I'm the messenger most of the time and, and this is a, a, a group at the American Contact Dermatitis Society come up, coming up with this, but the idea is just to draw some attention. Uh, to, to the various allergens. You know, you look at the ingredient lists of all these products uh, and, and you just wonder what are the important ones? What are the ones I need to think about? One do I need to test for them? So A, I get some adverse feedback every now and again and, and, and Lanolin provided some of that. If I could just dovetail onto the last uh, remarks before uh, on the topicals, as I kind of sat through uh, winter clinical, which really uh, spanned the entirety of m my week taking care of patients with dermatology. I if I would reflect, I might say, I if 2010 to 2020 was the decade for psoriasis, where everything changed, the paradigms changed, what is 2020 to 20 2030 gonna look like? And I think that's probably gonna be the decade of atopic dermatitis. We heard more talks on hydradenitis suppurativa, and they keep, uh, we keep hearing more and more about evolving therapies. The use, uh, Jocelyn Kirby discussed the use of um, spironolactone and metformin. And these are drugs that we have experience with. We're, we're adding them on. Uh, but I might say alopecia areata, vitiligo, and this is the sort of the ringer here, will this decade be the decade of topicals coming back? Because h how do we integrate these new topicals that are more effective than any prior topicals we had other than superpotent topical steroids? Where will they fit in a and how will we use them? And I, I don't think there's a clear answer on that, but I think they need to get integrated pretty strongly. I, I think the safety of them and uh, is just so important because it gives you, like with superpotent topical corticosteroids, you still always have that in the back of your head. Even if you're telling a patient, use this twice a week, what are they really doing? And you don't have this concern, uh, concern with the newer agents. But why don't we move on to some of the systemic treatments. And, and I, I think it's really important. We have a lot of discussion about Janus kinase inhibitors, and I think we need to have an open mind on how to approach them and, and really understand the patient populations and their, their potential risks um, 
of potential problems. But the agents that we do have, like the monoclonal antibodies that we have for atopic dermatitis, are highly effective. And we don't want to necessarily be thinking, oh, they're going by the wayside now because of Janus kinase inhibitors, because that's not true either. So, April, where do you see where do you see this going? Yeah, I think um, when we're looking at, for example, for atopic dermatitis, we have, for example, dupilumab well-established, and we also have trilokinumab now showing uh, the 3.5-year data, showing uh, very good efficacy and safety. Um, and then we have lebrikizumab, which is IL-13 inhibitor uh, as well, that is um, probably likely to be approved this year, uh, that adding to our armamentarium. So I would think that our choices are actually, uh, there are quite a few of them, and I think patients selection is going to be key. Uh, when we think of our JAK kinase inhibitors, our understanding of the safety profile, we, we know it works very well uh, in AD at the doses that we're looking at. Um, and I think the safety profile is something we're continuously learning. And I think the good message in that is that when we look at AD populations specifically, um, some of the black box warnings that was, you know, put on these medications from other indications and other populations seem to not as, uh, not are not as relevant to our patient population. That being said, I think a good monitoring uh, would, be, would be helpful. And then Jim, you and Nick and I, we, we created this um, JAK inhibitor um, handout, which I think would be very helpful uh, for our clinicians, which talks about in the monitoring right. guidelines. But the clinical judgment, I mean, that, that's such an important part of it. So taking the time to just find out the key things you need to know what's going on with the patient. So David, I know you have a lot of challenges. You get a lot of patients referred to you that have been managed by other clinicians, very good clinicians that have difficult to treat inflammatory dermatoses, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, dermatitis, NOS. So what's your feeling about, about these different treatments that are coming along? Right, and that comment about dermatitis NOS is, is uh, not a flippant comment, right? Because I, I think when we look at plaque psoriasis, we understand uh, the pathophysiology, at least as it stands now, pretty well, right? It's a IL-23, TH-17, it's got close linkages, and when you, when you flip on those links, you can really influence the disease very much. The problem when you have a, a patient with dermatitis, you send a biopsy and it comes back spongiotic dermatitis with a list of at least five eczematous disorders like atopic derm, numular allergic, irritant contact derm, uh, id reactions, spongiotic drug reactions. You know, you wonder if the pathophysiology of all these are the same and, and they may not be. Um, and of course, I think our, our first line of defense now um, are drugs that came out that really had very clean safety profiles, right? Very easy to use. So dupilumab and trilokinumab, uh, I, I think, are really good go-tos when you have a spongiotic dermatitis that you haven't really clearly demonstrated as allergic contact or it doesn't appear to be. And then... The question will be, do you move from one biologic to the other, right? So we have two now. There's going to probably be a third soon. And where do you pivot into JAX, 
right? And I think some sooner than later, and depends on the severity and the conditions involved, their labels, those Jack labels suggest that you'd fail a systemic therapy. That doesn't necessarily mean a biologic therapy. It could be cyclosporin, methotrexate, mycophenolate, and I dare say prednisone, right? The guidelines of care don't suggest the use of prednisone uh, for the long-term management, but... That's probably used more often yeah, than I the agree. other three you mentioned. Right? I agree. I think it's easy to be up on a stage and say, don't use prednisone for eczema, but we, I don't think there's anyone in the room who has not written systemic steroids for an eczematous flare to get a bridge to some control. So I think that's the reasonable way to do it. And then when you pick your right patient, the ones that have the fewest comorbidities that may put you at risk for some of those black box warnings. And I know we do talk about those black box warnings as being seen more commonly in other disorders. We saw it with tofacitinib at 20 milligrams a day in inflammatory bowel disease. But I would suggest that almost every black box warning has occurred in eczema trials, right, in one way or the other, and many with comorbidities that might put them at risk. So younger patients, those with less uh, MACE event potential. I, I think they're, they're good choices. The, the JAKs are the most spectacularly speedy and effective drugs we have available to us, and it's just a risk benefit for each patient, right? So we'll, we'll see how they play out in, in the um, total paradigm of what we use. Um, but they're, they're here and they're really valuable. I mean, one of the things that Olinda uh, and I did in a, a session this morning is try to get people out of the weeds of getting caught up on how to monitor. I, I think it's pretty straightforward, uh, the monitoring recommendations, and really not a lot different than what we would be doing with cyclosporin or some of the other agents that we used, uh, and just keep an eye on it and follow through with it. And April, what's your feeling, because I get this question a lot, and I'm sure others do, what's your feeling about you know, inhibiting tyrosine kinase 2, and is, it a, it, is, is lightening up on the monitoring really something that we should feel comfortable with, or what's your, what's your sense on that? Yeah, I think when we're thinking about tyrosine kinase 2, TIG2, most of the development in the oral realm in psoriasis right now is actually directed um, against tyrosine kinase 2 and importantly to the allosteric domain to make it more, um, even more specific. And what we saw clinically too, um, no black box warning with the approved ducravacitinib, for example, as an oral therapy, is an acknowledgement, I think, by the FDA after evaluating the evidence, seeing that the safety profile of a very specific TIG2 inhibitor being different from the JAK1, 2, or 3 inhibitor. So I think that's something that's important. Um, and I think we now have more oral choices, um, not only for psoriasis, but also beginning for psoriatic arthritis as well. Um, so, so I think those are some things to mention. I think orally, we also saw at this meeting presentation of a premolas being studied in kids six years and above. So so really oral therapies, you know, we traditionally think of them mostly, you know, studying in, in adult population. I think that's another shift that we're gonna see also newer oral therapies being studied and in I, pediatrics. I believe Mark Lebwald talked about oral apermalast and treating some other less common diseases that we're not likely gonna see FDA approval for because they're ra they're more rare. Um, but always go to the literature to look for those sorts of things. But and, and, we have other disease states, right? Mm -hmm, we have absolutely. lichen planus being 
looked at with topical ruxolitinib and even some of the oral uh, TIC2 agents. Uh, hydratinitis, I think, is one that I'd like to at least touch upon because, uh, and don't forget, bimikizumab very likely coming for psoriasis and good data on psoriatic arthritis and also evaluation inhibiting 17A and F, and hopefully we'll have approval for that soon for psoriasis with, with excellent data, as, as you know. But what about some of these other disease states in terms of how we visualize treating them, things like hydratinitis and alopecia areata, that we now have a lot of hope for patients that we, we were desperate before, right? Yeah. Any thoughts on those, David? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the evolution of the development of drugs for hydradenitis is really going in the proper direction, right? We're getting a better understanding of pathophysiology of the disease because of the, some of these drug development. And uh, we, we heard a lot during this meeting about the, the IL-17s really evolving in this area. I think um, generally dermatologists have more comfort level going long on IL-17s as opposed to long on say TNFs, if you had that option. And, and I was uh, really happy to hear about that. And again, uh, not to belabor the point, but the utilization of uh, topicals and some systemic drugs early in the course may be very valuable because once you have the tracks and the scars down, there's not gonna be much you can do with that with a systemic agent, right? Hey, you know, when we're looking at the patient from the surface, we're looking in the axilla and we're seeing those inflamed abscesses and things. These, we're not necessarily seeing what's going on under the no. surface, but these things are forming. And then when they finally emerge, it's too late. And so that's where I think these are disease, that's a disease where that you really want to get systemic therapy going early. What about, well, end with alopecia areata. Any thoughts about uh, the use of Janus kinase inhibitors or other therapies there? Yeah, I, I think, you know, what we've seen so far, you know, with our approval of baricitinib in alopecia areata has really brought changes uh, for our patients. And one thing that I think as a field that we are now struggling with, what about those who have had alopecia areata for a very long time, right? So we see efficacy, good efficacy in patients who have had it for a number of years, but beyond, you know, let's say beyond 10 years, it's, it's quite difficult. So I think we're still looking um, at those specific patient populations, but certainly I think it has been a game changer for, uh, for a lot of patients with alopecia areata. At the current time, you still need continued use to maintain the efficacy, which I think you know takes a little bit of education with the with our patients. Um, but I think as a field, we're also looking at more difficult to treat scarring alopecia, so um, frontal fibrosing alopecia, LPP, uh, with you know with uh, dutasteride or, or any other therapies. I, I think was mentioned were were some of the pearls. And right around the corner, we have another agent, ritalcitinib for alopecia areata which is a jack 3 tech so it's a different kinase so ox 40 ox 40 ligand are coming for atopic derma the, the learning is not going to stop and it's, it's it's very very fascinating and even lupus is being looked at with tick 2 and some other agents so i think it's very exciting so thanks david thanks, thanks so uh, much we, Jim. We, we ask if people want anybody else and they keep coming back to you so it's always backed by top of the man Thank you very Thank much. You and turn Thank in you. to Derms and Conditions podcasts. They come regularly by going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thank you.